Please stand for the reading of God's word. The Old Testament reading comes from Isaiah 50, verses 4 through 10. The sovereign Lord has given me a well-instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He awakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen when being instructed. The sovereign Lord has opened my ears. I have not been rebellious. I have not turned away. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, have I set my face like flint, and I will know, I will know, I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who then will bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. It is the sovereign Lord who helps me. Who will condemn me? They, they will all wear out like a garment. The moths will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant? Let the one who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on their God. The grass withers and the flowers fall. And the New Testament reading comes from Luke twenty-two twenty-four through 34. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them <clears throat> call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. The Gospel of our Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Jesus Christ. New glasses, Scott. Walmart, 988. All right, let's pray. Sovereign Lord, for an instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. That's what I'm asking for. For the weariness and travail of soul that my friends on my left and right and before me feel acutely in their bones for worries that won't go away, for confusions that won't settle, for fears that will not quiet down. Will you give me an instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary? We've heard a lot of messages this week. We've said a lot of messages this week. We've believed a lot of messages this week. We'd like to make sure the ones we're believing and acting as if they were true 
are in fact. So will you tell us again what we should believe and who we are and sustain us with those good truths and with your very life, which we invite to come now. Come Holy Spirit. Amen. A quotation from Stanley Hauerwas, professor at Duke and a favorite of Jimmy Myers, formerly of this congregation, now working at a church in Texas. He says this important statement. I need you to know, uh, he didn't say that. Here's the quote. I am not, of course, a heterosexual. I am a Texan, which is a philosophical joke meant to remind us that our identities are given through participation in practices that should serve the purposes of good communities. He is actually heterosexual, but he's not defining himself that way. I'm not, of course, heterosexual. I'm a Texan. Because our identities are ways of reckoning ourselves that are conferred on us, that come through our participation in practices that serve the communities that we're a part of. It's an important thing to think about today as we continue this little trek in thinking about moving toward God or moving away, offering God our faces and not our backs. And in order to do that, we have to have some confidence that it's a... So those really are. They're not in here, but they're in here. (laughs) But to offer our faces and not our backs means that we have to have some confidence that that is a, a wise and beneficial healing thing to do. And so we come to this passage... Luke's version of the Last Supper, where Jesus is talking to his disciples about what their identity is to be by reminding them who their founder is and whose life they're going to share so that they can make sure that they're calling themselves and thinking of themselves the right thing, so they can make sure that their orientation is the right orientation and they're not merely being led along by their own noses. They're not merely defining themselves by their own desires and wishes and clamorous needs to self-define. And so he's had the Last Supper with them. He's handed them his bread, which is his body. He's handed them. He's served them wine. He said, drink from it, all of you. And he says, I ain't doing this again with you guys until after I suffer. And until the kingdom of God comes upon you, then I'll eat from the fruit of the vine again. And he also reminds them that they are in their midst, sheltering a betrayer, but they don't know who it is. He says, the son of man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to the man who betrays him. And they began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. That's not in and of itself a hard-to-imagine bit of rancor. Who broke the vase? You might have heard in a house filled with children. It's the quiet one, probably, who did it. 
The non-guilty parties are filled with protests. They're filled with loud, assured cries of innocence. It ain't going to be me. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to betray him. I'm not going to be the one. And that conversation, these protests of a kind of self-defense, this kind of self-promotion, lead right into another kind of self-promotion. Another kind of self-identifying that's very native to our way of being. Also, we're told, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Also, they started protesting and wondering, hey, he's talking about the kingdom of God coming. He's talking about a new political administration. He's talking about a new realm of his sovereign authority being exercised, which means cabinet positions. Who's going to have the best one? Who's going to be the well, most well-known? Who's going to have the tremendous most preeminent place of honor. This is the natural question that they wonder. And it's a question that we, I think, wonder. Maybe not in those terms. But don't we wonder how much we matter? Don't we clamor for some amount of honor? Don't we insist that we be recognized, valued, told that we are the greatest and don't we have ideas in our head about what being the greatest would be and what we need to do to get it? In Wise Blood, Enoch Emery, near the end of the story, this simple man has been badly dishonored and he hates it. He sees with the hatred of being dissed, which is a word I use all the time. Disrespected, dishonored. And it, like most of us, well, like most of anybody who isn't filled with a sufficient amount of maturity and Jesusness, made him crazy with a notion that I've got to go get my honor that they stole. And this line, he had the sense, as he was off, he had the sense that he was setting off to get himself some honor. But he was afraid because he had the feeling that he was going to have to snatch it rather than receive it. He was setting off to go get himself, not a biscuit from Hardee's, but some honor to get his dignity back. But he was afraid because he was a, he was a fear in that he was going to have to snatch that honor from somebody else instead of receiving it from them. That's a really powerful description. And it, in a stark way, reveals what's happening when you start wondering, when there's a vain reasoning, a dispute that arises about who's going to be the greatest. And of course, when everybody's concerned about who's going to be the greatest, the only thing that can happen are disputes. You realize that? It's a fundamental error that lies at the heart of 
all that's good about liberalism in our culture, all that's good about multiculturalism, is that if everybody insists on their own individual differentiation, Simone Weil says, at the end what you get is a war of all against all. If everybody's walking around protecting and looking for and defending their own honor, then the only thing you can do at the end is have lots of disputes, lots of hurt feelings, and lots of people snatching from somebody else what they're not willing to give me. But everybody's doing it. It doesn't work out very well. Well, I mean, we have a lot of unity right now, culturally. Politically, that's never been better. I've never felt warmer inside when I've read or listened to anything. It makes me think the kingdom is just around the corner. Lambs and lions hugging and snuggling. It's a serious matter. It may just seem slight, but it's interesting that Jesus is here doing this this common ancient practice. Plato has Socrates in a last meal in a symposium where you talk to your followers. You disseminate parting words. You tell them what's going to come, the fates that are coming. And Jesus is doing this. Jacob did this in Genesis. Moses did this in Deuteronomy. And Jesus is doing this. He's having a final meal where he says, this is what our community is going to be about. This is what you guys are going to be about. This is who your authority is. This is what we're supposed to be like. This is what's going to happen. These are the things I want emblazoned in your memory as our last meal together. I'm giving you this meal, this tactile thing that you, can, you don't just remember, but you'll have my commanding presence with you as you do it, the Lord's Supper. And he's telling them, you who worry about who's the greatest, who's getting the most esteem, who has the place of honor, let me ask you to reconsider. Let me ask you to flip all the messaging you hear, the messaging inside and the messaging outside, because you're going to have to do that. You're going to have to invert your values all together. That's how Hauerwas can say, I'm not a heterosexual, doggone it, I'm a Texan. My identity is formed by my placement in a community according to practices where I give myself to that community. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. He says, listen, you who are arguing over greatness, my wizard glasses, that's what the kids say. Now you won't be able to think of anything else. My Harry Potter glasses. Jesus said to them, and it's like, oh, the end. Jesus said to them, You know when you look about, when you look about at definitions of greatness, you know in your head. You have mental furniture there of what greatness is. How it shimmers and shines. And and, and if you had arrived there, you would know. And here's what it would look like. The kings of the Gentiles, those, those are great people, right? And you know what they do. Their greatness means they have authority, and they use that authority for their benefit against the people. They lord it over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. They self-identify. It's very patronizing in a way. I'm a benefactor. I do you good, little people. And then in return, you pay me homage. You return the favor. I invite you to, I invite you to dinner and you do something good for me. 
back. But Jesus says, but you're not to be like that. You're not to subscribe to their same definitions. You're not to subscribe to their same notion of what authority is, of what greatness is, of what self-identification is. Instead, you're going to have to redefine greatness. Which he doesn't say, but it'll be painful. The further in you are to the world's definition of greatness, the more painful it is to embrace what Jesus says about it. The greatness, the greatest among you should be like the youngest. You know, he said a child before them earlier. A despised little children didn't rule things in the ancient East like they do now. So in our world, we'd be like, oh, you said a child there. Oh, of course, they're the greatest. They have the most influence, the most power. They can get the most things done. Everything revolves around them. Yeah, yeah, we got it. But no, that's not in the ancient world. Kids weren't like that. We didn't, we didn't act like that toward them. The greatest should be like the youngest, and the one who rules should be like the one who serves. For who, who is greater after all? The one at the table or the one who serves? Who's greater? The governor, when he sits down, or the waitress who brings him his chicken? Well, obviously the governor, Right? Is anybody aspiring to be a waitress, a waiter, a wait person? That's the question he's bringing up. He said, obviously, everybody thinks the person being served is obviously the person of greater honor, the person of greater esteem, the person of greater value, or they wouldn't be being served. And he says, and yet, what just happened to you? I was the waitress. I am among you as the waitress. I am among you as the waiter. I am among you as one who serves, he says. I am among you as one who serves. I am among you as one who serves. Jesus is pretty consistent and maybe to you annoying and his insistence on how important this disposition of service is, this disposition of saying, I'm not here to assert my greatness, I'm here to prop up the greatness of others. I'm not here to demand the meeting of my own needs, the heralding of my own wants, I'm here to make sure I give myself to the needs and the wants of the people around me. That is my disposition. The whole office of deacon in the church, we say, is based on Jesus saying, the Son of Man did not come to be deaconed, but to deacon, to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. There's a story that Paul Brand tells, who worked with lepers, not leopards, Michael Scott, People with leprosy. He did a lot of work on pain because lepers can't feel pain, and that's part of the problem. So they can get into all kinds of problems because they don't have the normal physiological alert systems. And he tells a story about a parliamentarian in France 
who was very discouraged and disillusioned with the slow progress of change in this government position. And he noticed one winter that in Paris there were beggars who were freezing at night. So he quit his post and he became a friar in a religious order. And he started organizing these folks who lived on the streets. Let's look for bottles. Let's gather them. Let's organize them. Let's sell them back. Let's create industry for these folks who have no place to go and have no one to serve. He had a fundamental notion in his head that their wellness would come by serving other people, these people who looked like they had nothing to give. And as they started to serve, they got off the streets, they started to be ennobled, they started to live, and then he got nervous and said, we have got to find some other people to serve. So he took a group to India to organize and to do the same thing with this running through his head. If we do not serve, we die. The second we stop looking outward, the second we stop being dispositioned towards looking how we can benefit the others, how we can advantage other people, how we can be orienting ourselves to their needs, the second we stop doing that, we become insular. We become self-protective. We become rife with conflict, wondering, who is the greatest? Why aren't you looking out for me? Why are they disrespecting me? Why don't they appreciate what I've done here? That's the normal thing that happens in churches. Because churches are made up of people and families. And that's the normal thing that happens in families. A family that exists only for itself will have lots of quarrels. A family that exists to serve those outside of it will have much less. The same for a church. And Jesus is saying, these are my parting words. You don't define yourself by the world's definitions of greatness. You have greatness conferred on you. He keeps going. I am among you as one who serves, and you are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. He's saying you're going to serve. You're going to be a community that is concerned about the welfare of the, of the world, the communities you're in, the neighbors you're in, the work that you're in, the cities, the countries. And guess what? You don't have to vie, scratch and claw for your own honor because I'm giving it to you. I have all authority in heaven and on earth. I am the king. And I'm giving you a place at my table. You didn't earn it. You didn't talk me into it. You didn't choose me. I chose you, he says, and I'm conferring this. You know what conferring means? It means I'm giving it to you. I'm saying this is what you are. It's a much better way to get an identity for God to tell you what you are and to be placed in a community. You know, that's why when you're thinking most clearly, when you think about what you are and you you define yourself in some way, these words that we like best that are most helpful are things like teacher, doctor, mother, grandma, aunt, father, friend. These are role words, identity words, 
that have to do with your tethered connection to other people who have a claim on you and who it's your delight to answer that claim. It situates you. That's what makes you mean something. If you're all of a sudden just walking around in the world and saying, what do I mean? I guess I have to make it up as I go. We can't blame the world. They got nothing to go on. They're being badly discipled. They're being told, you are what's in your heart. Never mind the postscript of, I'm sorry, your heart's not very good and there's nothing good there to go on. But we have the Lord Jesus who's saying, even though your heart's not very good and there's not much to go on, I confer on you a kingdom and I place you in a community where I'm going to dwell and I'm going to make you into something and you're going to follow me in serving people around you, giving to people around you, benefiting them with your speech, with your action, with your work, with your listening. You ain't got to snatch your own honor. You can receive it. And then you're in a community of people who have all received honor and who are willing to share it and give it to each other. Then you don't have to demand it from one another. Much less strife. Much greater unity. And then he turns and says, Simon... Simon, a.k.a. Peter. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift y'all like wheat. The you there is plural. Simon, as the representative of this group, Satan, Jesus reminds us, is real. He's asked to grind you guys up. He's asked to separate you like wheat and chaff. He's asked to render you completely useless, ground down, dust that can be blown about. But Jesus said, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. And it should not be lost on us. It should be worth our thoughtful consideration that at the head of the formation of this community in Jesus' last words, he says to the leader of it, I predict your colossal betrayal and lack of loyalty and a failure of courage from the outset. You realize in our country you could not get elected if you presented yourself this way. Vote for me. I hope to have the whole economy tanking in three months. I fully expect to be way in over my head for a job that requires a level of competence that I don't have a smidgen of. But I'm going to give it a whirl. I probably won't be able to do it. Come on, 2020, put me in there. I don't think it would work. I think you have to have lots of bluster and fake honor and self-promotional acumen. You have to be able to shut off entire parts of yourself And just boast like a crazy person. But Jesus is saying to Peter up front. I already have provision for when you don't come through. This has become a thing I pray. Kelly Caput got me thinking of this in his book on suffering. A thing I pray when people are struggling. When they're getting sifted like wheat. 
that their faith not fail. Realizing that Jesus thought this is one of the most important things to pray to his father for someone that Satan was trying to dismantle and grind down is that their faith wouldn't fail. Because Judas was entered into at the beginning of this chapter by Satan. He wanted money. He wanted a claim. He wanted not to let down the leaders. He wanted to participate in eradicating Jesus. And then he made this colossal error after that first terrible error. His faith failed. Not only did he betray his Lord, but he forgot about his Lord who would have taken his betrayal. And so he took matters into his own hands and took his own life. He disbelieved in forgiveness. He disbelieved in repentance. He disbelieved in the possibilities of a Savior who would stand in his stead. And Jesus is telling Peter, I'm praying that your faith won't fail. Peter will later say, your faith, which is more precious than gold. He understood refinement. About 15 years ago, I was asked to speak, and maybe I've said this here, it's been a while if I did. I was asked to speak at the Memorial for the Unborn in Chattanooga, which is at the site, some of you know, of a former abortion clinic, which was purchased, become a women's services clinic, and they made, in the place where the abortions happened, they made a memorial. And when I was asked to speak there, I was very honored and very terrified. What do you say? I went there on a Tuesday afternoon, and I just loitered and walked around and read these little placards. Maybe you've seen them. They will bust you up. Dear Timmy, forgive me, I didn't know. To Sally, we love you, we're so sorry. These little messages of people who had done something that was hard for them to get over now and had found forgiveness and they were seeking some reclaiming of it. And I asked Joe Novenson, who I ask all the hard questions to, what am I supposed to say at a thing like this? And he pointed me to Peter and Jesus. He said, after you have fallen away. Strengthen your brothers. When you've come back, strengthen your brothers. In other words, do not let. I started to realize. Do not let what you think of as the worst thing about your life be the defining thing of your life. The worst thing that you think you ever did is not the most defining thing. The most defining thing of what a Christian has ever done will be celebrated by us together on Friday. The most defining thing that has ever happened in your life is not something that happened in 1962 or in 1978 or in 2012. It's something we will celebrate together on Friday. And a Christian is someone who's learning to be defined by that act of Jesus not being a betrayer, but dying for them. Of Jesus staying on the cross when he could have come down, but he stayed there willingly so that he could take Peter's and my betrayal 
our self-promotion, our insistence on defining ourselves at the expense of other selves. He stayed there, and he didn't come down when they were mocking him. Eh, if you're the son of God, come down already. <laughs> if it was just in another time. But you know what would have happened? Wendell Berry says, and I think it's very clever. Had he come down in his glory, had he come down in his majesty, had he come down and acted as God and called down 10,000 angels, there would have been no tomfoolery. There would have been no smugness. There would have been no SNL skit. Everybody would have fallen to their faces immediately in terror. And there would have been no question who he is. But he stayed and let himself be mocked, silent like a lamb gone to the slaughter in service to the world by a sacrifice that writes it. And so he can tell his chief pillar, you're going to start out with a failure of nerve, a failure of obedience, being embarrassed of me and saving your own skin. And my cross covers that. And you'll lead a community of strengthening people who my cross is the main thing about their lives. We do not pick who we are. We get engrafted into the story of what he has done And he tells us you're made to be his servant. You're made to be the world's servant. And your sins, your failures, your rebellions, your inadequacies, they are not the matter. The matter is that the son of God who takes away the sin of the world has done it. Let's believe it. And let's share it in disposition and in word and song and indeed. Amen.